0: Father, we just thank you for your word and, and we thank you for the word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And, and Lord, the book of Hebrews is, is really all about him. And, and Lord, as you're going to tell us today that uh, as the author is going to say, Lord, that uh, uh, this is hard stuff to explain and, and many of us are dull of hearing. And, and that tells me, Lord, that if it's hard to explain, I need help. And so I ask you by the power of your spirit to help me to explain this today, but also, Lord, you tell us that we're we're often dull of hearing. So I I ask that you open our ears today. These are deep truths, Lord. We're we're going to be digging into some deep deep truths for the coming several next several weeks, Lord. And so we need the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. These are great truths. They're they're truths that are applicable to our lives. They're they're truths that that uh, will change the way we. We uh, do our religion the way we relate to you. If we can get these things down, Lord, and really apply them to our lives, then, then uh, Lord, we can enter the holiest of holies and be in your presence. And that's where we all want to live, Lord. And so we just ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us these things today. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Last week, we looked at the uh, old, old story of Easter, how Jesus had died for our sins on, at Calvary, uh, how he was buried in the grave, and on the third day he, he, he rose from that grave and uh, ascended back to heaven. And, and that story, I mean, I think everybody knows that story, the old, old story. And it's a great story. But the author of Hebrews would call that story milk, milk for babies, milk for baby Christians. I mean, we all, we all need milk, and so... Uh, when we're babies, but at some point uh, we need to advance past the bottle and we need to begin to eat vegetables and meat. Uh, the author refers to it as, as, as meat, but uh, in today's text, that's what we're going to begin to look at. We're going to begin to, to eat meat, the meat of the scriptures, and, and uh, we're going to look at the, I believe the Bible is, the Bible, the whole counsel of the word of God is the greatest story ever. Ever told. And so what we're going to be looking at uh, and learning more about today is the author of that story. The author of the story is none other than the main character of the story. The author of the story is Jesus Christ Himself. And, and we're going to be learning more about him. Uh, if, if a great writer like Kipling or Shakespeare or Frost or, or Samuel Clements, if they had written the story that we have in this Bible, I'm sure it would have been a great literary work. I don't think they could have ever dreamed this stuff up. but It, it, could have been, it might have been a great literary work, but, but that's all it would have been because they don't have the power to make it anything else. But the author of our story, the author of our story is none other than God himself. And, and, and so uh, he, he's our author. He's the author of life. He's the author of creation. He's the author of my life. He's the author of your life. And so we want to know more about him, and, and uh, we can only do that as we as we dig deep into the scriptures, and 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 he's our high priest, and so he has the power to minister in us, to take these truths that we're given here in Hebrews and in the rest of the Bible, and minister those truths into our life. Uh, not only to save us, but to give us that abundant life that he talks about. And so we want to look at our high, high priest today, and that's what we're going to be looking at as we as we uh, come to the book of Hebrews. So come back to, go back to the book of Hebrews, right there towards the end of the Bible, and pick up with me over in chapter number 5. We'll be beginning in chapter number 5 today. And what he's going to do, he's going to spend some more time here delving into this concept of Jesus Christ as our high priest. But before he does that, or or let me put it this way, he's going to talk a lot about Jesus as our high priest. It's almost going to get, you know, I don't want to say monotonous, but we're going to hear a lot about Jesus as our high priest. And so in in the middle of this theological discourse that he's going to give us, he's going to take a break and he's going to give us a warning. And the warning begins in verse number 11, the last verse of our text today. So, so, so turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and read with me verse number 11. He says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. What I'm about to say, the author is saying, is hard to explain. And here's the reason it's hard to explain. Since you have become, he's speaking all of us, you have become dull of hearing. Now, how do we become dull of hearing? By not delving into the scriptures, by not caring enough to pay attention to the word of God. And we're not talking about just the Easter story, the milk. We're talking about the meat, the whole counsel of the word of God. I mean, i got to say this going into this text. Deep theology like we're looking at today, I, I mean, it bores a lot of people there's no doubt about it. You get into what we're going to get into the next four or five chapters here, it bores a lot of people. And the reason it bores a lot of people is because people think this is not practical. I mean, I I don't know how many churches there are in Lafayette, but I bet you there are not many of them preaching through the book of Hebrews today. In fact, you go to you you listen to a lot of sermons and very rarely if ever do you hear anyone quoting from the book of Hebrews. And the reason is no preacher wants to be boring. And every preacher wants to, to uh, he wants his teaching to be practical and have application. And so they just dodge texts like this. But you know what? It's a mistake on both counts. Because this is not boring. I mean, to me, it's some of the most exciting stuff in the Bible. It's some of the most powerful teaching we will get in the entire Bible. And, and it's certainly applicable. I'm going to show you that today, how applicable this is to your life. And, 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 and here's how it's applicable because, applicable. because the book of Hebrews presents the majesty of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It also presents our depravity. So when you compare our, the majesty of Christ to our depravity, You see the need for the cross. You see the need for the blood. You see the need for a high priest. You see the need for a holy tabernacle. You see the need for for the blood being sprinkled on you. And you see the need for the power of Christ in your life. And So so it is very applicable. Uh, I think more applicable than a lot of stuff that that, uh, we look at elsewhere. And so, so you want to pay attention to this. And you don't want to become... Dull of hearing, and I promise you, if you pay attention and stick with this, you're gonna be blessed. God is gonna bless you. It's just like the Book of Revelation. It's tough to go through, but but the Book of Revelation promises a blessing, and I think the Book of Hebrews promises a, a, a blessing too. Now let's pick up where we left off last time. The author of Hebrews began to tell us about Jesus Christ's role as our high priest, and and uh, he told us how after Jesus Christ had died. He passed through the heavens on the way to heaven. And in Hebrews 9, we're told, and I quoted these verses last week or or read these verses last week. In Hebrews 9, we're told, listen to what it says. It says that Christ came as high priest into heaven of the good things to come with with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Now, what's the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands? What tabernacle is that? That's heaven. Christ passed through the atmosphere, through the stars, and all the way into heaven when when he ascended back to heaven. He passed through the heavens to heaven where there's a greater tabernacle. Not a tabernacle like this, not a tabernacle like the Jews had in the wilderness, not a tabernacle like they had in uh, Jerusalem. He passed all the way into heaven, the greatest tabernacle of all. You realize one day you're going to dwell there? You're going to dwell in that great tabernacle, the very dwelling place of God. And Jesus passed on to that tabernacle, and he set himself down at the right hand of God on the throne of God. And, before, and that throne becomes our mercy seat, and it's sprinkled with the very blood of Christ. Now, these aren't just, these aren't just typologies we're talking about now. We're talking about reality. What we saw in the Old Testament was typology. It was shadows of reality. The reality is there is a heaven, and Christ sits on the throne in heaven, and his blood is there in heaven. How do I know his blood is there in heaven? Listen to what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 12. He says, he came to heaven not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place. Once for all. Only one time he went in there with his blood. He's never going to go back there with his blood again. He's not going to die again. He's not going to get back up on the cross again. He died once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption for you and I. He did that one time. Now, that makes him greater than any high priest that ever preceded him. Greater than Aaron, greater than Caiaphas, greater than any of the high priests that the Jews had. Because his blood is not a covering for sin. His blood cleanses us from all sin, from all unrighteousness. It is a propitiation, a payment for all our sins. And so, when we see Christ in heaven, we need to look at Christ on the mercy seat and realize that he sprinkled that mercy seat with his own blood, the Theosamatus, the blood of God. That's what is on the mercy seat. And you realize that somehow, and I don't know how all of this works, he sprinkles you and I with his blood too. And and that's the blood that makes us holy. That's the blood that makes us righteous. And most importantly, that's the blood that gives us access to God. Having trouble in your prayer life? You You having a hard time maybe... Reaching out to God, maybe sensing the presence of God? Are you going to God, seeing yourself as a sinner who is cleansed by the blood of Christ? When you approach God, do you see the blood of God covering you and cleansing you from all your unrighteousness? If you're going in there with any kind of self-righteousness, with any kind of works-righteousness, you're not going to get into the presence of God because he counts all of our righteousness as what? Filthy rags. And so now what he's going to do, he's going to make this comparison in the book of Hebrews between Jesus as the great high priest and the high priest that the Jews had uh, throughout their history before the temple was destroyed. Now, one of the things that's interesting about looking at this text, the author is going to speak as if temple worship was still taking place in his day. That's one of the reasons back when I did the introduction of this book, I told you that this was written sometime before 70 A.D. And those people that give it a, a later date and give it later authors, authors that lived later on, I don't think are reading the book because it's very clear from what the author is saying that temple worship was still going on. We know from history that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so this was written sometime before, uh, probably at least 10 years before the temple was destroyed, somewhere around 60 A.D. I still believe that the author is Paul. I believe that Paul had this heart for the Jews, and this was his way of reaching out to the Jews. And the reason he doesn't name himself as Paul, because he knew if they saw Paul in there, they wouldn't read it, because they hated Paul. And so, uh, anyway, with that said, let's, let's get into the text in chapter 5, looking at verse number 1. He says, For every high priest, every Jewish high priest, Taken from among men. and not, We're not talking about the Lord here. We're talking about the, the, the high priest of the temple and the tabernacle. He is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the high priest, the Jewish high priest, was in charge of administering all the sacrifices. He was in charge of administering the burnt offerings. He was in charge of ministering the, the uh, sin offerings, uh, the Uh, on the day of atonement, he was in charge of that whole process whereby they atoned for the sins of the nation of Israel. Uh, He administered the wave offerings and the peace offerings, which basically were thanksgiving offerings. He was in charge of all of these things. And, and, And listen to what he says. He says, now this is the way he should have been. He says he can have, notice the tense there. So this is, apparently there was still a high priest then, but he says he can have compassion on those who, are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. In other words, the high priest should be able to have compassion on you because he's a sinner just like you are. He's subject to go. He's ignorant too in some things, and he's certainly going. You know, prone to going astray, and so so he should be able to to uh, have empathy for your sin too. And look at verse number three. Because of this, he is required. As for the people, I mean, just as he makes sacrifices for sins for the people, he has to also for himself offer sacrifices for sins. So before he could make any sacrifices for the people, he had to be consecrated himself because he was a sinner too. And before he could administer these sacrifices, he had to be made holy by a sacrifice for himself. Now... I'm not going to scare you off here, but let me say this. One of the best things you can do when you're studying the book of Hebrews is study Exodus. When I first studied, I had two Bibles out. I had my Bible open to Leviticus and Numbers, and I had it open to Hebrews. When you're studying Hebrews, if you want to get into a real in-depth study of Hebrews, I advise you to read the book of Leviticus. I mean, read it this week if you want to. Great, great reading. Uh, I might still have some of the T-shirts we gave to the people that came on Wednesday night. We gave out T-shirts when we went through Leviticus that said, I survived a verse-by-verse study through the book of Leviticus. Uh, David, do we have any of those left? I don't know if we have any left or not. But we can get you one. If you want to go study Leviticus and you tell me you've studied it, I'll get you a T-shirt. But it's tough. It is tough. It is tough. But you got to understand what was going on back then because those were shadows of the real thing. So what I want to do is back up to Leviticus for a bit. I'm not trying to scare you. Don't leave and walk out. Now hang on with me. We're going to go back to Leviticus and we're going to see Aaron and his sons consecrated for their service as high priest. There had to be sin offerings made for them and we get a picture of what had to happen for every priest over whoever uh, ministered the sacrifices for Israel. So go back with me to Leviticus. That's the third book of the Bible, all the way back to Leviticus. And go with me to chapter number 8. Leviticus chapter number 8. Okay. Okay. Let's let's just pick up at verse number one, and you'll get this entire picture. Now, pastor, you said this stuff had application. Leviticus? Application? I'm going to show you it's got application here in just a minute. How many of you are born-again believers in this room? Okay, it's got application for you. You're going to see lots of application for you. All right, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments, the anointing oil and the bull as a sin Offering. now what's that sin offering going to who's that sin offering going to be for Aaron and his sons two rams and a basket of unleavened bread and you know what here's what had to be tough on these guys look at what happens today and gather all the congregation all two million Jews are going to watch you uh be consecrated so gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting so Moses did as the Lord had commanded and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting And Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. And then Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water. Now, you know, some of you I might do that too, too, but uh, uh, I mean, why did he do that? Why did he wash them with water? That symbolizes the washing of the word. In other words, what you're doing today, if all of you, you, most of you raised your hand and said you're a born-again believer. You're being washed by the word of God. You're being cleansed by the word of God. And so, so they, that's, that's symbolic of what takes place with all the priests of God. And he put, on, put the tunic on him and girded him with a sash and clothed him with a robe and put the ephod on him and girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. And then he tied the ephod on him. And then he put the breastplate on him and put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastplate. Man, what a beautiful sight this had to be. Here was Aaron with his white linen garment and he had this band of gold around his head. He had the breastplate with these 12 beautiful stones that represented the tribes of Israel and he had the Urim and Thummim. What was the Urim and Thummim used for? To determine the will of God. It was placed over his heart. Want some application? You know how you, people ask me, how do I determine the will of God? Have, have a heart for God. Desire the Lord with all your heart. and, and I mean, seek the Lord with all your heart, and, and, and uh, he'll give you the desires of your heart. You'll know the will of God. If you have a heart for God, if your heart is in tune with God, you'll, have, you'll know the will of God. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, a lot of times the reason we don't know the will of God is because the Lord's not on our heart. And, and, and I don't know, he was on Aaron's heart, but this was, all, this was the way it should be. And this was the way, this was the picture that was being painted. Aaron should have been white and cleansed, and he should have been cleansing himself with the word. And he should have had uh, the Urim and Thummim in his heart because he, he delighted himself in the Lord. But look at this, he says, and, and he, put on, he put the turban on his head and, on, and also on the turban on its front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown that the Lord had commanded Moses. You know, you have a holy crown. You have a holy crown God's given you. You are a child of the king. You are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Also, Moses took the anointing oil and he anointed the tabernacle and all of that was in it and he consecrated them. Now, oil in, the in, in, the, in the Bible always represents what? The Holy Spirit. And so what he's what this what this symbolizes here is the fact that the entire uh, uh, all the tabernacle, all the utensils, all the parties were bathed in the Holy Spirit, and then he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times. That's the number of God, the perfect number, the, full of the Holy Spirit. Anointed, he anointed the altar and all the utensils and the labor and its base to consecrate them, and then he then Aaron's got to have a special filling. And so he pours some of the anointing all over Aaron's head and anointed him, and you can see the oil dripping down his head, down upon his beard. And what does that represent? The filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, you're not ready to minister uh, unto God and to minister unto his people until you're full of the Holy Spirit. Then in verse number 14, now at this point, actually, Uh, drop to verse number 13. He says, Then Moses brought Aaron's sons and put tunics on them. He girded them with sashes and put hats on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now at this point, Aaron's feeling pretty good about himself. Two million people out there watching this process and here he is in 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 this great glorious garment with his crown of gold on his head and I mean he's looking like he's top dog. But then look what has to happen next. A sin offering has to take place on behalf of Aaron and his sons. And so in verse number 14 it says, And he brought the bull for the sin offering. And then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and Moses killed it. And then he took the blood. Now why the blood? Why does there have to be blood in, our, in, 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 in the J- J- Jewish religion and in Christianity? Why does there have to be blood? Because we're told in Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 that the life is in the blood. The wages of sin is what? Death. Sin causes death. Only life can overcome sin. And so life has to be taken for sin to be done away with. And so Moses killed it and then he took the blood and put some of it on the horns of the altar all all around with his finger and he purified the altar and he poured the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Jump down to verse 23, 22. And he brought the second ram, the ram of consecration. Now this is this is going to be the, the uh, burn offering. He's, he's offered a sin offering and now he's offering a burn offering. And he brought the second ram, the ram of consecration. Then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and Moses killed it. And he took some of the blood and look what he does. He put the tip of Aaron, he puts some of it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, some of it on his thumb of of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Now, what what did he do that for? Because everything that Aaron was to do was to be holy. Whatever he heard, wherever he went, wherever he touched with his hands, it was to be holy. And the blood is what makes it holy. Aaron couldn't make himself holy. It was the blood that made Aaron and his sons holy, and so uh, he he at this point here's Aaron with he's he's in these beautiful garments. Now he's got blood on his on his uh, uh, ear and on his thumb and on his toe, and he's ready to administer the sin offerings and the offerings for the people of Israel. Now, again, where's the application in this for you? What does this have to do with you here in Lafayette in the 21st century? What does all of that have to do with you? Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He says, you, you who are born again, you are a chosen generation. You've been chosen by God, a royal generation priesthood royal what's that mean a kingly priesthood that's why you wear the crown of gold you're a priest you're god's priest you're a priest who represents jesus christ we're ambassadors of jesus christ we're a royal priesthood a holy people how many of you are holy people Raise your hand, you're all holy people if you're born again. If you raise your hand and say you're born again, because you don't make yourself holy, it's the blood that makes you holy. You're God's, what's it, he, Peter describes what a holy people is. You're God's own special people. And you've got a purpose, and Peter tells you the purpose, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the application. You're a priest unto God. You're a priest unto this lost and dying world. And your main job is to proclaim the praises of the one who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're a holy people. How are you made holy? By your own works? No. By the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why if you could see yourself, you probably have a blood-tipped ear and a blood-tipped I'm left-handed, so I'm left, on my left hand, there's bl- bl- on my thumb. Blood tip, toe. Because wherever you go, whatever you hear, whatever you do, it needs to be holy because you're a holy people. And you know what? The problem is sometimes that we forget what the priest is The Paul's day in the first century had forgotten that we're sinners just like the people we ministering to. We sometimes think that we're better than people. We sometimes think because we've been saved now, it's us against them. That's not true. Hey, we're to to proclaim uh, the praises of him who took us out of darkness, and we're to tell people how he took us out of darkness. That's our job. Our job is not to present ourselves as being better than other people. There had to be a sin offering for us, didn't there? There had to be Jesus Christ on a cross for us, just like he died on a cross for them. We're no better than them. All we've done is believed. That's what's made us holy. That's what's given us the crown of glory. Nothing we've done on our own has done that, other than just putting our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So going back to Hebrews chapter 5, He's still talking about the earthly priest here, the Jewish priest. In verse, number, in verse number 4, he says, And no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. I mean, Aaron didn't make himself priest. He didn't appoint himself to be high priest. He, Moses didn't even appoint him to be high priest. Who appointed him to be high priest? God appointed him to be high priest. You don't get the honor of being a priest unto God by anything you do. You don't call yourself to be a priest. God called you. God hunted you down when you were running as fast as you could from the Lord. He drew you near to him and saved you by his blood. You didn't call yourself. He called you. Many are called, the Bible says, but few are chosen. Now, I believe in choice. I believe you all have a choice, but, man, God has a way of making you make a choice. <laughs> I think most of you are born again. It, it, you, you had to come to a point where you said uncle, and, and he knows how to make you say uncle to make that choice. Now, what he's going to do now, he's going to move from the type of high priest to the real high priest. All of this stuff is shatters All the Jewish tabernacle, if you read read Leviticus and you read Numbers, those are all shadows, and and they're fun to read because it's, it's like a mystery that you can read and you can figure out what applies to Christ, what applies to us, what applies to God. I mean, all of these things are embedded in there, and it's all shadows of realities. But now we're going to look at the reality, and this is the meat. I mean, we all know the milk. We all can suck on the bottle of Easter. We all know that story. But now we're going to look at, we're going to, we're going to eat some meat here. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 5. He says, So Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. So also, Christ did not glorify himself. Christ didn't one day say, Okay, I've died for these people's sins. I'm the Son of God. I declare myself to be high priest. You know, God didn't even appoint him to be High priest. Look at what it says. He says, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who who said to him, you are my son. This is how he became high priest. Today I have begotten you. Do you understand what he's saying? Today the father says you have come forth from me. You are born to be high priest. I mean you came forth from me. To be high priest. One of the major plot lines of the greatest story ever told is not. We'll leave Easter alone for a minute. It's the Christmas story, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ became uh, who was God forever. God became man. He came. He became man to be our high priest. That's. His, that's who he is. That's not a title of something, a, a, a title or, or a position. That's who he is by nature. He is our high priest. and he's a high priest like no other. Look at verse number six. And he also says in another place, "You are a priest in the Psalms, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Who in the world is Melchizedek? I'm going to tell you. Every, before we get there, though, every good author, or most good authors, uh, incorporate some kind of mystery or mysterious character into their narrative. You know what? The Bible is full of Mysteries and mysterious characters. Give you some examples. I mean, what took place in the Garden of Eden, a snake talking to two people? That's pretty mysterious to me. Is it to you? It's pretty mysterious to me how stupid Adam and Eve were to eat that fruit when they were living in paradise. That's that's a mystery to me. Why in the world would they be so stupid? I guess it's really not a mystery because I know I would have done the same thing, and you would have too. But there's all sorts of mystery in them. Do you realize that the gospel is a mystery? When you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's no word gospel there. You, you, you really, when you read the gospels, it doesn't say much about the gospel. The gospel is a mystery. It's only, it's only really revealed to us in the epistles. And so the gospel itself was a mystery. The church? Was the church a mystery? How many times did the word church appear in? in the Old Testament, very few times. Jesus only spoke of the church a couple of times. It's only through the epistles that that mystery of the church is revealed to us. You talk about mysterious characters. There are all sorts of mysterious characters in the Bible. The angel of the Lord is a mysterious character. I mean, this guy Enoch, who walked with the Lord and he was no more. Man, I'd like to be mysterious like that, wouldn't you? Just walk with the Lord, and one day the Lord said, boy, you're walking good, George, you're out of here. You don't even have to die. And that's what the rapture is. It might happen any day now. Uh, there's all sorts of mysterious. Those sons of God that mated with the, 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 the uh, women, the daughters of men, they're pretty mysterious, and produced the Nephilim. That's, those are mysterious people. Uh, the prince of Persia in the book of Daniel, this this mystical character that comes on the pages of the book of Daniel. Who in the world is he? Uh, uh, and then you get this guy, Melchizedek. I mean, who is Melchizedek? Well, we first hear about Melchizedek over in Genesis chapter 14. You remember the story uh, there was a war between the Canaanite kings, and Lot got caught up in that war, and he was on the losing side. And so he got captured by the winning kings. And so Abraham gathers up an army of his servants, only 300 men. And they go out against this giant army. But they have, because God's with them, they have this great victory. And they defeat the Canaanite kings. And they they take a great spoil. And Lot is rescued. And Abraham is back at his camp. And he's celebrating the victory. And all of a sudden, this strange character shows up. Melchizedek Melch Shalom. He had two names. Melchizedek Melch Shalom. Uh, Melchizedek, king of righteousness Melch Shalom, king of Salem or king of Shalom, king of peace so he has, two, he has two names and Abraham recognizes him right away and it's strange to me that Abraham recognizes him not only does he recognize him he gives him uh, the, the priest Melchizedek blesses Abraham and then Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoil that's where we get our first picture of, of the tithe and so who is this guy? Well, a lot of scholars believe that he's a type of Jesus Christ, that he has to be a type. Now, we're going to look at Melchizedek more when we get to chapter number 7, but, but uh, let me say there's no way he can be a type of Jesus Christ. He has to be none other than Jesus Christ. He has to be. If, he, if he's not Jesus Christ, then we don't have a trinity We have a four-person God because Melchizedek is God. We see that. He has to be God because he has no beginning and he has no end. And only God has no beginning and has no end. Now, let me give you four reasons that I believe that Melchizedek has to be Jesus Christ. First of all, I mentioned it earlier, he was no stranger to Abraham. Abraham recognized him right away. That means he had seen him on several occasions. Who had Abraham seen on several several occasions who had no beginning and had no end? The angel of the Lord. It was the angel of the Lord who called Abraham and said, I'm going to take you out of the land of Chaldea, and I'm going to take you to the promised land. And so he he, he had seen him before. He recognizes him right away. And and I I just believe if, 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 if he had been a stranger, somebody different than the angel of the Lord, he would have said, who are you? But he doesn't do that. The other thing is, and this is probably the most important piece here, Melchizedek has lived forever. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 3, we're told that with, he's without father, without mother. Now that causes people problems in, bring, in saying he's Jesus Christ. I'll talk about that in just a second. He's without father, he's without mother, he's without genealogy, having neither beginning nor days, beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever forever he's for always been a priest so if he's always lived forever and he's in a human form we got another god on our hands if it's not jesus christ and i don't believe i believe in the trinity i don't believe in a four godhead i believe all the godhead dwells in jesus christ bodily because that's what the bible says now the problem comes this without mother because he had a mother named mary he had a stepfather named joseph But what solves that issue? The virgin birth. He was virgin born. And when 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 Jesus Christ came to visit Abraham, he hadn't even been born on this earth yet. That time hasn't passed yet. So when he came to visit Abraham, he was without father and without mother. He had no genealogy at that point. But later on, he does have a genealogy. Even though he was born, he's lived forever. His going forth are from ever. Lasting. Remember what verse 11 said, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain? It's hard to explain, but you've got to believe the truth that you're given. And you've got to put it in the context of all truth. So Melchizedek has to be none other than Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate God. The, fourth reason, the third reason is the fact that Abraham gave him a tithe. I mean, who do you give tithes to? Who did Abraham give tithes to? He gave tithes to God. And so he recognized him as God when he gave that tithe to today. And then I look at his names, the King of Peace and the King of Shalom. Uh, uh, the, the, I mean, the King of uh, Peace and the King of Righteousness. Who is the King of Peace and who is the King of Righteousness? None other than Jesus Christ. So the mystery is pretty easy to solve if you, if you look at it uh, objectively. And if you want to be wrong, you can say it's somebody else. But but you know the right answer now. All right, let's go to verse number 7. Now, we're back to Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, in the days of his flesh, when he was living on this earth, Melchizedek lives in heaven, but in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. It's a lot of stuff there. What are we talking about here? What event are we talking about? The Garden of Gethsemane. That's exactly what we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about when Jesus was in the garden and he was praying, "Uh, Father, uh, can this cup pass from me? Uh, uh, If not, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And so he had a chance to bail out here. Now, every good story has a hero. Every good story has a hero. So, so you would think the greatest story ever told would have the greatest hero ever. Hey, it does, doesn't it? Who's the greatest hero ever? What's a hero? hero is somebody who makes sacrifices for others. Someone who risks everything he has in order to save others. You think maybe Jesus did that? You think maybe he risked it all in order to save you and me and he could have bailed out? Look what it says there. He says, says, who was able to save himself from death? He could have walked right out of there and, and said, I'm not going through with this. But he didn't walk out of there. I mean, he doesn't bail out. You know, he was facing such a terrible death on the cross such a terrible couple of days he was facing such horrors that he sweated drops of blood and he was able to walk he could have walked right out of the garden and said I'm I'm not going through with this but he didn't you know why? because he loves you Because he loves me. That's why. You know, there are some people who believe those drops of blood that he shed in the Garden of Gethsemane were part of the atonement. You heard of the seven stages of the cross? This is one of the stages. And and people believe that somehow the the suffering, and, and, and this is hard to explain, that somehow the suffering that he endured at Gethsemane, the suffering that he endured when he was being beaten by the by the uh, by the priest, the suffering that he endured when he was when he had the crown of thorns laid on his head and he was whipped tied to that post and whipped, the suffering he experienced when he walked up the the Via della Rosa, the suffering he experienced uh, when he was nailed to the cross—they were all kind of co-equal in the atonement. They believe that that's part of the atonement. That's why if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, and this is what bothers me about that movie, although, you know, I almost recommend it because it just shows you the brutality of what he went through. But the message that's being taught there is that each of those stages was part of the atonement. Now, what, that, what, what bothers me about that is that I don't think you understand atonement if that's the way you visualize that. It wasn't, there have been people who have suffered deaths as horrible as what Jesus Christ. Suffered physically. Did they atone for anybody's sin through those deaths? No. If all that was happened, that all that happened there was Jesus sweated blood, and then he was had a crown of thorns put on him. He was beat by the priest. He was whipped, and then he had nails put in his hand and nails in his feet, and he was hung on a cross, and he died. If that's all that had happened to him, you would still be in your sin. That's not the atonement. Now his his broken body. And his shed blood is the atonement. But the atonement took place when your sins and my sins were placed upon him on the cross. That's the atonement. I mean, he wasn't wasn't sweating blood for my sins in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was was suffering and, and it was a great event because he made the decision to go through with the cross. But you make light of the cross in those three hours of darkness when you think somehow that it was the physical suffering that atoned for your sin. No, it was the... you understand what happened to him? No, you can't understand. But do you know what happened to him when he was there in those three hours of darkness? you know what happened? Your sins. Your sins. Every sin you ever committed was placed upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be given the righteousness of God. You think about all the torment of your sin. Has, all the torment your sin has caused you in your life. You take about, think about the torment it's caused you, and then you think about the torment of, of the sins of millions and billions of people over history, and every single one of them were placed on Jesus Christ at the cross. That was the atonement. The atonement was not in the garden, although what a great event that was. Because there would have been no atonement if Jesus had backed out. And he could have backed out. Look at the very next verse. It says in verse number 8. Though he was a son, the son of God. I would translate that. Though he was the son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned obedience. And you talk about a mystery. He is omniscient God. He knows all things. He knows all things from the beginning to the end. He knows all things in eternity. Everything. He knows your future every single day, every thought you have. He knows all of that. How can he learn obedience through his suffering, through the cross? How did he learn obedience? Well, that's given there for us. We've got to put that in its proper perspective. From our standpoint, The cross wasn't a finished work until 33 A.D., from our standpoint. But from God's standpoint, when was the cross finished? When was it finished? Well, look look in chapter 4. Look in verse number 3, the last part of verse number 3. Although the works of the cross were finished from the foundation of the world. In God's eyes, before before the worlds were even created, Jesus had died on the cross. Jesus wasn't going to back down. He knew he wasn't going to back down. But here's where the choice comes in. I mean, he was predestined to die on the cross. God knew he would die on the cross, but he still had a choice. He still could have backed out. And so he was perfected by that choice. See, he was, he was, he was, he, his, his obedience was shown by that choice. We learned about his obedience from that church. He learned about his obedience because he was a man, 100% man. He was 100% God. God knew he would make the choice. He was going to make that choice. He knew it before the foundation of the world. Man, aren't you glad he made that choice? He proved what God knew all along he would do. He proved his obedience. If it's possible, he said, let this cup pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The will that you had before the foundation of the world. And having been perfected, the better translation there is completed. Having been completed, he became the author, the author of eternal salvation. He wrote the book on eternal salvation. He's the main character of eternal salvation, he's the creator. He became the author of life we'll see in another place because of the eternal salvation he gives us to all who will obey him. You talk about the greatest story ever told. There it is right there. He's the author of the greatest story ever told. To anybody who will read that story and obey him. That means I've got to do, be perfect. I've got to live perfectly. I've got to never fall. I've got to, I've got to, to be perfectly righteous is that what it means there how do we obey him we obey him by what was the what was the sin that caused the israelites to fall in the desert unbelief what's the opposite of unbelief believe how do you obey jesus christ you believe him you believe him for everything you put your faith in him for everything you put your faith in him for your salvation for your sanctification And for your glorification. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Of whom we have much to say. But it's hard to explain. And i got to give you guys credit. You've been listening today, so I'm not going to call you dull of hearing. You have an interest in that. That's great. You know, it bores a lot of people. But this is an integral part of your salvation, the story we're looking at. And this author's got plenty more to tell us. I mean, you've got to take a deep breath because he's got a lot more to tell us, and it's going to be hard to to understand. It's going to be hard for me to explain. And I wish I could do a better job of explaining it. But no matter how hard it is for us to understand, no author wants his story to be dull to his readers especially the author of the greatest story ever told if he if this story is born to us don't we can't blame him can we just blame ourselves it, because we become dull of hearing i mean and that would be sad if that happens to us Because you know that the author of this story, the greatest story ever told, he's the author of your life. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world to be his child. Man, that story story ought to excite us, shouldn't it? That great story, the greatest story ever told. I don't know about you, but I want to know everything I can about the author of this story. I mean, what better what better pursuit is there than to learn about Jesus Christ? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for getting us through this difficult topic, Lord, and we're heading into some more difficult topics in the coming weeks, so I just ask you to just continue to bless our ears, Lord, so we don't become dull of hearing. Lord, that's a choice. We hear so many things in this world that... that uh, Draw us away from you, Lord, and these great truths that you want to show us. Father, we're just, we're so humbled by who you are and, and how undeserving we are. We're so humbled by your majesty, Lord, and by our own depravity. Lord, help us show us that it's only through your blood that we can enter your very presence into your holiest of holies. Lord, and if If we see that, then we can come into your very presence with thanksgiving. We can come into your very presence and sense the reality of your being. All because of this great story. All because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We just thank you for the victory we have in the cross and for his precious blood. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Y'all want to stand with closing the song.